Please take your Bibles, or you can use one of the pew Bibles that are there, and turn to Philippians chapter 4. We have, uh, for four months or five months, I can't remember exactly how long, been working our way through this book, and we have two more weeks. We'll cover half of this chapter this week and half next week as we uh, look at uh, how Paul concludes his letter to Philippians. And it's really significant. What Paul has done is in really the first three chapters, largely laid out a, a theology uh, that he wants the Philippian church to think about in their setting. And then in chapter 4, he unfolds what that's going to look like among them, how they could practice what they have learned. And so in chapter 1, he talks about how the gospel is going out and it's beyond being conquered. That, it, that even in his chains, the gospel keeps going out and people are still being uh, converted to faith in Christ. In chapter 2, he points to a rich and beautiful and humble Savior whom we can receive and imitate and how we have in the church uh, other people to help us walk in faith in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 3, how uh, we already have as a gift a righteousness that didn't come from us. And so we don't have to chase that righteousness and try to achieve it, but rather receive it and then take delight in knowing the Savior who gives it. And that leads us to a hope that is unquenchable and conquers every other desire in our hearts. And so we get to chapter 4 and start to work out in real practice what that's going to look like. And we could sum it up, at least for the Philippian church, two major ways. Peace and quiet. And who doesn't like that? But the peace is the peace that that gets into our hearts and our minds and is not dependent on what's going on in your life. The quiet is the quiet of an ambitious heart, satisfied with what it has been given, and it is independent of the circumstances of our life because we have truth from Jesus and His grace in our lives. That's what we're going to see in the next two weeks in Philippians 4. And so uh, we're going to start reading in verse 1. Let's pray and ask for God to bless the time we spend in His Word. Oh, Father, would You cause us to see the riches of the grace that You have given, to receive it with humble and sincere and thankful hearts, to be transformed by what we read, to practice what we know to be true, and to live as those who belong to You, safe, and secure in your hands, and led in every way toward life. We ask you to open your word up for us today, that we could receive it and be blessed by it, indeed made alive through it. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown... Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness Be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. It's completely true and utterly trustworthy. A few years ago, I was watching one of those evening uh, news shows, Dateline or 2020, something like that. And as a, a little experiment, they had set up in a public place, something like a mall, a little studio in which they had put down in the center of the room a, a short putting green. Now, uh, it was, uh, you know, set up with cameras and the cameras were hidden. And, and uh, they invited folks who were passing by to come and, and hit a few putts. And the putt was long enough that you could miss it, but it was short enough you could make it too. And so uh, these folks would get in there and they, would, they were supposed to take 10 putts and count how many they hit. And set a little baseline level. So people would come in and typically it was, you know, your non-athletic types who maybe didn't play that much golf. And they'd come in and they'd hit three or four putts out of ten. Straight putt, just straight in. No obstacles, no windmill, uh, no hills, just straight. And they'd hit three or four. And, and then the people who were conducting the little experiment would say, now listen, here's what we're going to do. I want you to try it a second time, 10 putts. If you can do as well, all you have to do is match what you did the first time or better, we're going to give you $500. Well, that sounds great. Let's do it. And so they would agree to it. And then they would pull back the curtains and the cameras there marked with the, you know, emblems of a national news network. And the, they would turn on studio lights and, and all of a sudden you're under the lights and you realize, hey, hey this is this is being recorded. And they would tell you this is for 2020 or Dateline or whatever. And you realize I, I'm going to show up on TV for this performance of, of small stakes putting, but for money. And almost universally. Everyone did worse the second time. Uh, they had one exception, uh, one class of people who were exceptions to the rule. It, it was uh, people who had been uh, athletes in college. People who had used to perform athletic things in front of a crowd managed to get up and still do as well as the first time or better. But it was unusual. And I thought, come on. So I went outside to the basketball goal and said, I'm going to shoot 10 free throws. And then I'm going to pretend like I could get $500 and show up on TV shooting 10 more free throws. And I want you to know I did worse every time. Just pretending. That little extra pressure that kind of gets a little bit of anxiety and nervousness going really affects how we do what we do. And if you were concerned that athletes may have figured out the key to this, they just figured out the key on that on maybe athletic performances. After all, think about the the athlete who, after a brilliant college career, makes it into the pros and starts getting paid big money. And you hear the stories of how they've got this entourage of of hangers on, of folks who were friends in high school who are leading the this young athlete and making bad decisions. It's so 
common that it's practically a cliche. And you'll hear the announcers talking about their life off the field and saying if he's got these people who are who are misleading him and getting him into all sorts of trouble, he'd be so much better if he didn't have that entourage. Well, they can't say no to him. They're afraid. They're anxious about hurting their old friend's feelings of saying, I've got to cut you off. Or they're anxious about being alone. The anxiety just shows up in a different place. The idea of having peace in our minds and hearts is, is, is such a uh, noble ambition and a great idea, but we can't find it. We're looking for it, but almost the universal human experience is that at least at some part of our lives, peace would be the, the last thing we would expect to find there. We find anxiety about our relationships. We find anxiety about our money. We find anxiety about our jobs, about the future, about the economy, about politics. Anxiety just sort of gets in to our minds and hearts. And Paul says, listen to me, the gospel's going out. And you have a great Savior. And you have a righteousness and access to Jesus. And a hope that is beyond quenching. You have a right to peace. And that peace, if it were to get into your hearts and minds, is going to start affecting you so that you are free to love your neighbor. You see, anxiety causes us to use our neighbors to try to get peace. But if you have peace, you can actually love your neighbor. That you can start sinking the putts in the metaphor. You, you, you can start enjoying God instead of wondering, where are you if you had peace? If you had peace, you'd be able to live in every single circumstance with this supernatural ability to endure it. And, and that's what Paul wants to show you in Philippians that you can have peace with each other and what that looks like. You can have peace with God and what that looks like. And you can have peace in every part of your life, every circumstance or situation in which you find yourself and, and to see what that looks like and, and a little bit of, of how to implement it for you. So uh, let's start with that. What about peace with others? Verse 2. Paul says, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Uh, this is a remarkable little paragraph. Apparently, there is some kind of conflict between Euodia and Syntyche. These, these are women's names. So these are women in the church in, in, in Philippi. And uh, you can tell from this uh, some things, but there are also some stuff you can't see. Like, what did they fight about? We don't really know. And, and Paul doesn't tell us. And I, I feel like I'm kind of glad he doesn't tell us what they fought about. Because here's what would happen. A few of us would go, well, I think Euodia was right. And a few of us would be like, oh, I think Syntyche was right. And then we'd have the same fight here. Whatever they were fighting about, it was, it was uh, a big deal. But it wasn't so big that it challenged the gospel. After all, there were fights in other churches and Paul took a clear side. You know, if you said, hey, you've got to keep the old Jewish laws to be a Christian. Paul said, that is cursed. That's anathema. I fight that with everything I've got. Paul took time to fight things that challenged 
the gospel. So what they're fighting over is something less than that. But it's something so significant that he still had to call it out publicly. This is a letter that would be read to the whole church. And in it, he mentions these two people by name. Now, that tells us something about their their fighting. It probably was well known in the church. After all, try to imagine the situation in which I would name two people from the pulpit and talk about the fight they were having. It's really hard to come up with a situation like that. But it would have to be one where the fight was significant. It would have to be one where it was public. It would have to be one where you had sides that were gathering. Some with Euodia, some with Syntyche. This is significant. And it appears they're not going to find a resolution to their conflict alone. He asks a true companion, verse 3, to help these women. Help them come to a resolution. But it also seems that Paul says, I think there's a resolution out there. I think there is a way for these women to overcome what they disagree about. And so, what would it really look like? We can probably imagine. It would have to be something like this. Euodia was going to have to give up something that she really wanted. Something which she was saying, this is the way things ought to be. And she was, and, and Syntyche was disagreeing. And so each was going to have to give up something to come to an agreement. And, and this true companion who, uh, whom Paul calls on to help them was going to help them negotiate and figure out some middle ground in which they would both give something up and both get something and be able to find an agreement. Now, I want you to ponder that very simple idea. that They would have to give something up and find something they agree upon. After all, think about the times when you've had a fight with a friend, with a spouse. Isn't it this? There's something that I feel is threatened by my by this other person. My comfortable nature of life, the way I'm doing things, the things I want to organize. Let, let's pick up a petty example. Let's suppose we were fighting over the thermostat. Some of you are thinking in here, let's turn down just a little bit. And a few of you are like, uh, no, let's turn it back up. And so we're going to fight over the thermostat. And it is because we start to say, this matters. This thermostat, this temperature, it matters more than my relationship and peace with you. That, that's really the nature of all fights. Is I've found something that I want to fight for that matters more than the peace we can have in our relationship. And Paul says, listen, Euodia, Syntyche, I want you to realize that the peace that you have in Christ, that's what he says, I ask them, I entreat them to agree in the Lord. This relationship you have in Christ, you're being reconciled in the name of Jesus is bigger than what you're fighting about. And I'm not taking sides. I don't care who wins. There's something bigger. And you're beginning to lose sight of the bigger thing. And so what Paul is saying to you is that you can have peace in your relationships when you get the order right. When you say, my relationship with this person, for Jesus' sake, is bigger than what we're fighting about. Now, I want you to think about somebody in your life with whom you've had a fight, or perhaps somebody that you still feel there's something between us. Jesus says, 
uh, that if you find you have something between you and a brother, when you're ready to offer a gift to him, he says, wait, put your gift away and go be reconciled to your brother first. This is in Jesus idea and his sense of the church. Absolutely vital is that Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, put away these things that are between us and be reconciled. It's it's the kind of church Jesus is building. And so what it's going to take is for you to do some analysis of your heart. What do I want? What is it that I want that I'm fighting for that's keeping me from relationship to my brother or my sister? And is it really as big as I think it is? Does it rise to me saying, okay, Jesus, you told me to be reconciled to my brother, but did you see how big this thing is that's between us? Because that's what we're saying when we harbor these broken relationships and refuse to repair them. The places where you fight with someone else are diagnostics on your heart. What you fight for is what you treasure. In your fights, in your conflicts, are the thing is the thing you're treasuring big enough to fight for? Or is there something bigger? The honor of Jesus, the peace of his church, the, the loving relationship that he has called you to. Is that bigger than what you're fighting for? You can have peace with each other. When Christ becomes the most significant thing in your life. And so if you're in a fight right now, the first place to go might be, what is it I'm treasuring and turning to Jesus and saying, can you help me put that better in a lower spot so that I can worship you bigger than this thing? That might be the first place to start. And it brings peace in your relationships. The second thing is you have peace with God, not just in uh, peace with each other, but you have peace with God. Now, that may seem very basic, but look at verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. All right. So the, the command here is pretty clear. Rejoice. You ought to be celebrating your place with Jesus. That he has welcomed you, he's given you grace, he's made you his own, and that ought to be a place where you find happiness, a place where you find joy. Now, this isn't to say that you can't have grief along at the same time. Christians are people who can weep and rejoice at the same time. We can be suffering and feeling the impact of a broken and fallen world while at the exact same time knowing that I belong to Jesus And so while it hurts right now, I have this hope that can't be quenched. And so there's this bubbling conflict in us all the time of joy and weeping. And they run right alongside each other. Sometimes the the joy is, is, is bigger and sometimes the weeping is bigger, but they never go away. And so Paul says, keep coming back to this thing you've got with Jesus. Keep coming back to the Lord and going, but I belong to the God of the universe. And it helps put everything else in your life in perspective. You have good standing with him. And he says, here's what that really looks like. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. (laughs) That's a funny way, I think, to to describe what joy looks like. Reasonable. 
I think of joy as jumping up and shouting, raising your hands and, and writing a song or, you know, if I could do that kind of thing. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonableness was this idea that I could enter into a situation that didn't go my way and I could still be worked with. I didn't have to have things go according to plan. It means gentleness and forbearance. And so things could go all wrong around me, and yet I'm not insisting on what is my right. Now, how do we get to the point where we can let go of our plans, let go of our rights? I am supposed to get this. I'm supposed to get this encouragement. I'm supposed to get this thanks. I'm supposed to get noticed. And I can let go of those things. How does that happen? Because I found my joy in the Lord, not in getting noticed. I found my joy in the Lord, not in being properly acknowledged. I found my joy in the Lord, not in having my things and my life in order. And so Paul here is saying, when he tells you rejoice in the Lord, he's also saying, and, and don't rejoice. Don't find your deepest joy in other things. Let me give a real way this would work. Let's suppose that um, you walked out of, of Walmart and you came outside your car and the window was broken in and uh, a, a bag of, of things that you were uh, taking home had been stolen out of your car. You know, the first thought on that is uh, just... Deep frustration and, and, and disappointment, especially if the stuff in the bag was really valuable and hard to come by. And you go, who would do this? And there's a, sort of this bitter and anger that starts to rise up. And, and there's a sense of justice that's been offended. And that justice, that sense is right. But as a, as a Christian, you've got one place to go with, with all of that, which is to say, you know what? That thing, as valuable as it was, was given to me by God. And it itself was never where my joy and happiness was. The, 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 the fact that I had an intact window on my car, that wasn't where my ultimate joy was. I liked my car. I liked that stuff. But I know God gave it. And so I trace this small piece of joy that I can get from car and stuff back to the one who gives. And you see, that hasn't changed. God is still there. You know, when when these bad things happen, when I lose stuff in my life, whatever it is, God is still there. I was uh, listening to one of my favorite preachers, Ricky Jones, uh, talk about a time when uh, he had a tree that was impending on his power lines in his house. And so he hired uh, a company to come and cut some of the branches loose. And, and apparently that is high tech work. It cost a thousand dollars. To, to cut all those trees safely. But it, his house was better. And after all, that's that's worth it. A couple of weeks later, his neighbor had a similar circumstance and the utility company came by and cut all those trees and didn't charge him anything. And when Ricky found out about it, you can imagine the first sense is frustration. But as he walked away from that conversation, here's what he said. Wow, isn't that an interesting thing for God to do with his money? That is the attitude that you and I have with all of life. My joy is in the Lord, not in my money, not in my circumstances, not in my place. It's in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. 
And so isn't it an interesting thing to, for God to do with his car window? Isn't it an interesting thing for him to do with his time when my time is wasted? Isn't it an interesting thing for God to do in my life? Isn't it an interesting thing for God to do with his servant to put him in prison as Paul was in prison? You get the idea that the joy and the standing I have with God isn't changed. And when he gives me uh, stuff, things that I enjoy, good circumstances, I give thanks. And when he gives me circumstances that are adverse and filled with affliction, I still look beyond that to the joy I have in God that doesn't change. You can have peace with God and it produces joy and a reasonableness that says, I don't insist on my rights. The last thing is that we have peace in our present life. He says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All right, so everywhere you have this anxious thought, everywhere, every anxious thought that enters into your mind and your heart, everywhere where that peace is threatened, God tells you, bring it to me. Bring it to me and I'll take care of it. Put it on my list. Come and pray. Make your request known. What kind of request can we have? Everything. God, I'm really anxious about my health. God, I'm really anxious about my job. God, I'm really anxious uh, about uh, the, the storm. The next storm. I'm really anxious about my children, my grandchildren. You could put anything in that list, can't you? Where do your anxieties lie? God says, bring them to me and make your request known. God, I'm really anxious about my children. Would you overcome my mistakes and cause them to grow in Jesus? God, I'm really anxious about this relationship because I have messed it up. Would you reconcile us? God, I'm really anxious about how guilty I feel and how much shame I feel. Would you help me trust that I really have peace with you and that I could find the joy of your salvation? We bring everything to God, but we bring it with thanksgiving. Why thanksgiving? Well, every time we find something to be thankful for from God, what we're saying is, God, I remember how you provided there. I remember how you cared for me here. I remember how you forgave my sins. I remember how you have raised my children already. I remember how you gave me a job when I was without one before. I remember how you sustained me when my health was bad last time or when my neighbor's health was bad, how you sustained them. Every time you give thanks, what you do is you say, I remember the kind of God you are. And so that means I can really trust you with my anxieties. I remember how you sustained Paul in prison. I'm thankful for that. I remember how you surely brought peace to Euodia and Syntyche and the church in Philippi. I'm really thankful for that. And so that must mean you're willing to do it in our lives too. Every Thanksgiving helps us go, I can lay this on you. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you bring your anxieties to God. He commanded it, so I'm going to come pray. God, I'm really anxious about these ten things. We make our list. 
We list them all ten. And then when you get done praying, you're like, I'm more anxious than I was before. I just went over all my anxieties and a few that I'd not been thinking about. Now I'm really anxious. Well, what happens is we go through our anxieties and then we leave the prayer thinking, now I've still got to deal with these ten things. Instead of thinking, God is going to give me all that I need to bear whatever happens. And so we want to bring our prayer request to God, expecting God to answer. His answer may not be, I'll clear the situation up. His answer may be, I'll go through it with you and my grace will be enough. And when you get done praying for your situation, I have a friend who um, lost his job and he was looking for one. And as we were talking about it, he'd heard a lot of people say, don't worry, God will provide. And he said, yeah, God might provide by making me be able to endure homelessness. And I'm a little afraid of that. That is how God might provide. But there's a way for us to say, even if I were homeless, God's grace would be enough. Even if I lost everything, God's grace would be enough. Paul's writing to the Philippian church that was under constant persecution. Go back and read in Acts how the church was started. The Jews there started a riot and tried to overthrow Paul and the church right away. And it was constant pressure and constant persecution. And Paul says, hey, you're anxious about those swords. I get it. Pray about it. And then there's a peace that as we lay it on God, that's beyond being able to explain or understand that guards your heart, that protects it from these darts of doubt and, 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 and dark circumstances. Not that the dark circumstances don't come, but that your heart can be overwhelmed by them. Like in Isaiah, where God says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. They won't be able to overwhelm you. When you go through the fire, I will be with you and you won't get burned. God is saying, I will be with you in all that you pray to me about and you will have peace. All right. In just 90 seconds, how do we actually practice all this? In verse 8, he tells you, finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So he tells you the first step you want to do to, to gain this peace is to think about the stuff that could be described as honorable, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. We might think great art or good ideas or beautiful vistas. But really what he is thinking is for you to think about the Lord Jesus, who is the perfect, praiseworthy, beauty, honorable, commendable thought. Think about Jesus and his beauty and his glory. Ponder what he has done and accomplished for you. Think about his resurrection as you bear hard circumstances. Think about Christ sitting on his throne, ruling from heaven. Let that meditation penetrate your thoughts. Take hold of that thought and what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Take hold of Jesus and think about him and practice life in him. 
And that's when the peace begins to show up in your relationships and show up in your joy between you and God and show up in the, the circumstances that can't overwhelm you. Uh, Paul Tripp said this week, if you stress out because you think your life isn't working according to plan, you're forgetting that Jesus reigns for your sake and his glory. Jesus reigns for your sake and his glory. Um, one way the world will tell you to get peace is to is to get rid of any ambition or desire. You know, don't want anything. If you uh, don't care about the economy, you won't care whether it's thriving or, or, or falling apart. If you don't care about politics, you won't care who gets elected. You won't be despairing or uh, too high. And the idea of, of peace through apathy is a pagan concept. It makes us more like a stone than like a human. Jesus is telling us that you gain peace through thinking and desiring more deeply than you have before. C.S. Lewis tells an illustration of a little child who's playing with mud and making mud pies. And he won't leave the little mud puddle because he can't even imagine what it would be like to have a vacation at the sea. Though it would be so much better than the mud pies he's making. He says, your desires aren't strong enough and that's the problem. Well, I want to escalate his illustration. It's not just that you, you have the possibility of a vacation at sea in his illustration, so that, but we're satisfied with mud pies. He's saying you have a secure home, your personal location. You've got it already built and it's sitting there at the beach waiting for you. But here's the problem. I own something at the beach. I'm always worried about the next hurricane that comes through. And so God says, yeah, but I'm taking care of that. I'm protecting it. I'm guarding it. My peace surrounds your holiday at sea. My peace surrounds your eternal hope. And no thief can touch it and no storm can damage it and no rust can get on it. It is secured and kept for you. And so you hear Paul say, you know that? Rejoice in that. Let the peace of what God has said and given to you permeate your relationships with each other and with him and with all your circumstances. And this peace that's beyond understanding and articulating protects your heart from everything around it. Let's pray together. Father, we are very thankful for the peace that you give. And we want it to take its rightful place in our lives, controlling our thoughts uh, subduing our false ambitions and leading us to Jesus and to the joy that he gives. We pray that you would make us a peaceful people for Christ's sake. Amen.